From Engaged Cornell, I'm Natalie Breikoff, and this is Shifting and Shaping, a podcast on community members who are shaping a new American paradigm. It was to my surprise and anguish that there were hundreds of blues legends buried in unmarked graves across our nation. After speaking to Steve Salter of the Killer Blues Headstone Project, I later spoke to T. Dwayne Moore of the Mount Zion Memorial Fund based out of Morgan City, Mississippi, to understand what memorialization looks like in the Mississippi Delta. In 1989, the Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Morgan City, Mississippi, was in jeopardy of losing their deed, and the agricultural operation surrounding it was slowly encroaching on their cemetery. The death certificate identification of Zion Church, several hundred yards from the site of legendary Robert Johnson's resting place, provided the opportunity to raise money for the memorial. I spoke to T. Dwayne Moore of the organization. I guess when, when Skip started the organization, he, he really wanted to you know, memorialize blues artists. He started going to these, these sites, particularly the Mount Zion Church in Morgan City, and um, they were about to be foreclosed on by the bank <clears throat> in Greenwood. He also learned at the time that Robert Johnson probably wasn't buried there. Um, we didn't know where he was buried at the time, back in 1990. It just said Zion Church on his death certificate. The church remained in the hands of the congregation. It didn't get foreclosed on by the bank. He was concerned that it might get um, might get bought by some tur- blues tourist interests, turned into like a roadside tourist stand. Uh, Disneyland for the blues type deal. Um, so he wanted to try to help the, the congregation and the, the pastor, Reverend Ratliff, keep control of the church and make sure that the, um, the cemetery, which it sits on the edge, like in the very corner, of this massive cotton field. One of the problems um, in the Mississippi Delta you have is these old sharecropping communities, African-American sharecropping communities. The churches will get, um, they'll, they'll either fall down, burn down, or will just uh, fade away because they're made of wood, or they might get torn down. Um, and the only thing that'll be sitting there is the cemetery. And sometimes these farmers would pull up the headstones and, and plow the cemetery into row crops. Cleaning off the land was the commonly used term for such activities. And sadly, this was not an unusual practice. Skip Henderson founded the Mount Zion Memorial Fund to prevent depredations by creating memorials that would serve to save the cemeteries and to provide the respect due to those African Americans whose lives were lived in the world of Mississippi. The state of Mississippi now proudly identifies itself as the birthplace of American music. Are those more or less the same families that have lived on the land for generations, or are they new farmers that come in and then eradicate the, the graveyards? Um, the, the owners, um, like the people who own the land, they'll be the ones who have owned it for a, a lot of years, most times. These burial sites are found in the former plantation and sharecropping fields of the Mississippi Delta's floodplain. There is a deep connection here. How do the landowners feel about the fact that they have 
these important grave sites on their land? Do a lot of them, do they care? Do they not care? What's, what's Some the, do. I mean, it's, 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 um, I mean, they're each individuals. I mean, so they each have different feelings about it. Tom Robinson, I mentioned in Holly Ridge, he's been very, um, very supportive of, uh, you know, his his father spoke at the dedication for Charlie Patton's memorial, and he's always been very helpful um, as far as the cemetery there in Holly Ridge. Um, you know, the, but other, other lands, other landowners um, are not so uh, amenable, like with the issue with Tommy Johnson's grave. The landowners there, it was two landowners. The cemetery, uh, Warm Springs Cemetery sits um, one acres on one person's property and the other acres on another person's property. And and back in the 70s, after the, the church had, had faded away, burned down, um, and that spot, uh, when the church was there, had turned into sort of a lover's lane. So the road was closed, um, the, the, the church burned down, and the cemetery was pretty much um, abandoned. Um, so the, the they didn't want anybody to have access. So 30, 40 years later, when the family comes down, they want to get access to the cemetery. They were not uh, willing to give them access. Uh, unfortunately, they don't have that right legally. Um, if uh, the, if your descendants are buried even on private property, um, you have the right to visit them. Um, they, the people on the land, have to give you a, an easement. Um, you just have to um, you know contact them and, and work it out. Unfortunately, some landowners are not willing to work with you. Uh, but sometimes it, it leads to legal action. What mattered above all else was control of the land. In 1990, the Mount Zion Memorial Fund assisted in initiating a lawsuit against a farming operation that wiped out a century-old African-American cemetery in Elizabeth, Mississippi. The farming operation in this case reused the official headstones of black veterans as paving stones leading to their tool shed. One of the most important things to understand about, about the blues um, is that it came about in the 1890s. Um, so this is after the end of slavery, after the Civil War, 25 years after that. What happened in the 1890s to you know, bring about this uh, this music uh, from the African-American community that's so vivid and has is, is inspired people across the world. Well, it was the hardening of racial attitudes. Um, it was the passage of new state constitutions in the former Confederacy in the 1890s to disfranchise African-Americans. You have a huge, an exponential, a nearly exponential rise in the number of lynchings of African-Americans. And the lynchings were based on racial stereotypes. Um, stereotypes like black men were had this insatiable lust. They couldn't control themselves and wanted to rape white women. Those stereotypes taking away the right to vote and racial segregation, the hope that had been after the Civil War, after the end of slavery, starting in schools, of freedom, the hope that existed in 1865, it's taken away by, 18, by the 1890s. I mean, it's that impulse, uh, that, that uh, feeling of despair, uh, and that feeling of, of having to fight to get the future back that the blues is born out of. Its very existence was a protest against um, you know, eradication, uh, against um, against disfranchisement, against racial segregation, against stereotypes, against lynching. Um, I mean, the blues itself is 
the ultimate protest in its existence. The legacy of the blues is sewn from the earliest threads of post-Civil War life, influencing shifts in the American body politic and musical landscape. Delta's a floodplain. Um, it's just a big flat. Uh, it flooded for you know, hundreds, thousands of years, so it's extremely flat. And um, <clears throat> what happened after the Civil War in the late in the 1890s, you had African-Americans predominantly move into that area and farm a lot of that land. And they were farming it on shares or sharecropping. And a lot of them were exploited, uh, put into exploitative sharecropping, sharecropping contracts um, where they get in something called debt peonage. So you had very uh, poverty-stricken communities. Um, Tunica County was one of the one of the poorest areas of the United States in the 1990s, where people were living um, in, you know, just wooden shacks with no running water, um, no plumbing. And so the legacy of poverty in the South has fundamentally been intertwined with the way that blues music is presented in the current day musical and physical landscape of Mississippi. That's sort of the paradox of blues tourism. Um, one of the things they say is, that it's going to, uh, we're going to bring in a lot of money to Mississippi through blues tourism, and we'll be able to build and grow from that money that comes in. But part of the appeal to tourists is that it has looked dilapidated and old and run down and authentic. Loud celebrations are due for bluesmen after a century of resting quietly in unmarked graves. If it's a church-related cemetery. Um, I mean, the church, church is, is heavily involved. The, the pastor is usually the, the MC for the program. Um, and uh, usually they have people come up and speak, family members, uh, artists uh, who are particularly inspired or they have musical performances. Um, and, but other places are different. Uh, some places are like in the middle of fields, out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and it, it's extremely hot. Or they're in an abandoned uh, cemetery in the middle of Memphis um, and it's 100 and something degrees. Surrounding the blues genre are countless myths and fallacies about the black experience. The, the idea that um, a, a black man would have to sell his soul to the devil uh, to be able to play the guitar. That's one of the uh, most uh, prevalent and uh, lasting, um, this, that, that, that concept. Uh, and it's much, that's, uh, you know, based in the based in um, ignorance of the black experience because we don't know anything about the black experience we have to make them magical figures um, in order to understand um, it's a concept called the magical Negro the memorialization process must value and delicately handle historical practice community engagement and the active confrontation of fallacies present in blues narratives precipitating from racial and economic subjugation. You know, a lot of these, a lot of these artists were, you know, country uh, blues uh, recording artists like back in the 30s and 40s. Um, and then they were uh, rediscovered um, by, you know, folk art, folk, folk blues fans in the 1970s. Uh, and when they were, when they were rediscovered, sometimes they were just working uh, jobs as a, you know, watching a, a cottonseed warehouse like Sam Chapman. Um, so when, when they're saying they didn't know their 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 uh, relatives were famous, you know, it's because of 
then being out of the recording industry for so long and also being uh, part of this, uh, you know, racially segregated society that relegated African-Americans into certain segments of the workforce where they were having to work jobs uh, to sustain their livelihood, even though they had once been, you know, recording stars at one time. Credence Clearwater Revival's John Fogarty collided with the organization as well. He decided to go and find his musical roots, and he came to Mississippi and started looking for the graves of some of the people that he really admired. Um, he was, he drove past the cemetery, Mount Zion Memorial Church Cemetery, and he saw two guys standing out there, Skip and, and, and uh, a friend of his. John Fogarty pulled up to the uh, alleged gravesite of Robert Johnson. Um, that's when John decided you know, he wanted to be a part of the Mount Zion Memorial Fund and help out with the projects. Um, he had a uh, uh, he had an organization called the Fogarty Fund at that time, and he funded um, he funded the Robert Johnson or he partially funded the Robert Johnson Memorial, funded the Charlie Patton Memorial, James Son Thomas. Each artist's memorialization process is special in its own way. Well, for me, I mean, I, everyone I've done has, has been uh, pretty, pretty amazing. Um, I've had a lot of twists and turns. Everyone is difficult. The most important would be the one for Bo Carter. Um, that's one of the ones that took the longest. We weren't just marking the grave. Um, we were also saving that cemetery, which is on the edge of a cotton field in Nittayuma, um, and it's very endangered. But we also did a lot of uh, research with uh, with the family and with other people, like his lawyer, um, and and they're trying to get uh, royalties back for a song that Bo Carter wrote. I tried to get as many people who wanted to be a part of that, including family members, uh, artists, um, community members, uh, individuals who who own the land there where that was i wanted to make you know even i want them all to feel invested what was his musical legacy like um well I, it was one guy called it pornographic he wrote a lot of songs um uh, using like metaphors and entendre to relate to sex Um, but Bo Carter was also the most uh, prolific songwriter in the pre-World War II era. He recorded from 1928 to 1940, all throughout the Depression. Nobody else did that but Memphis Minnie. Each gravesite uniquely reflects the rich essence of the genre. Memphis Minnie, she's one of the um, she's one of the artists that's actually had um, you know some serious scholars write whole books about her life. And it just seems like the history is so rich, even with Memphis Minnie, how she was from the Mississippi Delta, and then she went to Beale Street bars in Memphis. I mean, she's one of the only female country blues guitarist, and um, and she recorded. She was more pro, pro more prolific than Bo Carter was. Mount Zion Memorial Fund uses Ancestry.com to connect musicians to family members. That's one of the main ways um, I've been able to make research discoveries, inroads into these myths and fallacies. Um, uh, and one of the uh, most important one has been for Charlie Patton. Um, Charlie Patton was long thought or purported to be of, of Native American ancestry. Um, 
It's been a uh, something that's been pushed. It even was used in a film called Rumble, which is about the significance of Native Americans in rock and roll. Uh, Charlie Patton's in the film. They talk about his Native American ancestry. Um, turns out that that was um, just uh, something a musicologist uh, purported back in the 1970s um, because he wanted to disassociate Patton with his African-American ancestor by saying he was the son of a white father and a Native American mother. And what we found out at this point is that you know, his grandmother was enslaved on the House Smith Plantation in Hines County. Um, his, his grandfather was the white overseer on that plantation. Um, and his, Charlie Patton's father um, was the, uh, the product of the, the, her sexual assault uh, on the plantation. The identification of the grave of Charlie Patton beneath garbage bags destined for a nearby plantation incinerator led to the second memorial. We were able to debunk the narrative for his family. We've worked with um, the descendants of Charlie Patton's brothers and sisters. Um, they had a family reunion in Atlanta um, last summer and we were able to work with all of them. We've even tracked down the white descendants of Charlie Patton's grandfather, the overseer, Wow. On the plantation uh, where his grandmother was enslaved. Um, well, what's the relationship between that side of the family, the fam that side of the family that comes from the plantation owners, and then the other side of like the black family that has roots in slavery? Well, they didn't know about each other. I mean, this is all you know, brand new information. There can be a lot of problems and a lot of mistakes and, and wounds can be re-inflicted if you're not working in tandem with the community, um, if you're not working in tandem with the family. Yeah, what would be an example of re-inflicting a wound by accident when you're trying um, to memorialize an artist? The Mississippi Blues Trail in 2007, they put up a, a blues trail marker in Crystal Springs, Mississippi, in the middle of like the downtown business district. All right. Um, now the down, now it, this was not the place where the family uh, or, or any of the African American community really would have wanted this this uh, memorial for this uh, for Tommy Johnson. They could have used it to help get access to the cemetery, but they didn't. They put it where right in the middle of uh, the business district in Crystal Springs. Um, the history behind the business district in Crystal Springs, well, Crystal Springs was the uh, one of the main headquarters for the Mississippi White Knights, the Ku Klux Klan. Putting a memorial there was a painful and sinful oversight. In 1967, the NAACP held an economic boycott in Crystal Springs. Um, they were going to boycott all the white-owned stores until they hired black employees. Um, it was a very hard-handed uh, heavily enforced boycott. Rudy Shields, the leader of the NAACP, had to whip some of the conservative black business leaders because uh, they violated the boycott in the middle of town in front of people so that people would know, do not violate the boycott. Do not shop in white stores. Don't do it. Despite Rudy Shields doing that, despite him whipping the black conservative leaders of the town who were allied with the whites, uh, despite him burning down the barns of, of boycott violators, the white business owners in Crystal Springs never hired a single black employee. It's the only boycott in Mississippi where the business district and the business owners 
never capitulated even an inch. You know, for the, for the African-American community who knows that history, it reinflicts that wound and they're preventing people from reach, reaching a consensus about the past uh, only by accepting the same path, accepting and understanding what happened, can we ever move on? If you think that something didn't happen and I think it did, it's really hard for you and I to reconcile over that incident. What, what, is, what is next? What are the next steps to creating a more equitable and inclusive story or history narrative? If we're not telling the truth and being honest, and, or if we're trying to cover up uh, the uncomfortable parts of history, that leads to them, it happening over and over again. It leads to people not being able to reach that consensus about the past, and it reinflicts those wounds. Um, only by you know, realizing the horribleness, uh, the, the terrible nature that is American history, uh, can you really start to understand the beauty that's in it as well, um, that's in the civil rights movement, the, the black power movement, um, the Black Lives Matter movement. It's in the struggle of ordinary human beings fighting for a better life, um, fighting for the American dream. With the aid of the incredible organizations and people with whom I have spoken, many dozens of Black musicians will lie in newly marked graves across the country. Within the immense tragedy, there is power and justice in preserving the legacy of life. If you want to support this work, please consider donating to the Mount Zion Memorial Fund. That's it for Shifting and Shaping. I'm Natalie Breikoff. Stay tuned to the next episode, which touches upon a descendant of the legendary Mississippi Young family drum and fife tradition.